Hello and welcome to Saving Animals with Blank Park Zoo. I'm Ryan Bickle. On today's show, we have a very special guest, Alex Fortz. Uh, he is an aquarist here at Blank Park Zoo. We have uh, three people in that department, I believe, right now. Is that correct? Yep, my supervisor and uh, yep, one other coworker right now. So, and, and you've worked at Blank Park Zoo a little over a year. Is that yep. right? Yeah, I started in January of 2018. So, yep, just over a year. Yeah. So uh, you take care of all the fish, the corals, the frogs, uh, any other animals you take care of? Actually, recently we um, took over all the indoor reptile exhibits, too. So, yeah, we've got fish, frogs, and reptiles for now. So that's coming up on today's show. But first, we just sort of want to talk about what Blank Park Zoo does. Um, We are, of course, a zoo. We have... uh, 200 species, 1,500 animals, and we take care of those animals here on site here at Blink Park Zoo. And uh, many of those are uh, endangered uh, animals in the wild and natural habitats, and um, we seek to preserve them for future generations. Now, when you come to the zoo, we have education programs. Uh, and we also have conservation programs. And these conservation programs, not only are we talking about conservation of the animals in Blank Park Zoo, but we're talking about conservation of animals in their natural habitats. So when you come to Blank Park Zoo, a portion of what you spend here at Blank Park Zoo goes to help animals in their natural habitats. So you hear about rhinos, and you see the rhinos at Blank Park Zoo, and we had a baby rhino recently, and that's great for the species because there's less than a thousand of them left um, on the planet but not only are you helping the animals at Blank Park Zoo but you're also helping the International Rhino Foundation uh, preserve and protect rhinos in natural habitats so that's just some great stuff we do all the time you may not even see or hear about it but uh, we use this radio program as a way to let people know about it and so with that I'm going to bring in Alex and Alex your keeper, we would say you're an animal keeper, but you're more, your title is more of an aquarist. Yep, I take care of more of the aquatic side of things. Yeah, so what are some of your favorite animals you take care of here at Blank Park Zoo? So I think some of my favorite animals would actually be something that most people wouldn't consider to be an animal, but um, they're corals. So corals are animals, and we do have a live coral reef tank and i would say that um they are probably my favorite sort of animals to maintain in captivity for a variety of reasons and coral that coral tank is not the big coral reef tank that we talk about because that that has a lot of saltwater fish in it that big fifteen thousand gallon tank that has um uh, uh, decorative corals in it they're not real we have another tank that's in our birthday party room and so if you ever have a birthday party at Blank Park Zoo, that is the coral tank that Alex is talking about. Tell us some uh, how you got interested in taking care of fish and corals. So I actually, um, here, in, here in Des Moines, Iowa, there is a local high school called Central Campus, and they have a really um, immersive and uh, just a very well done sort of marine biology and aquarium science or marine sciences program. And so I started out a long time ago in high school. I actually got really interested in uh, fish and corals and all that kind of stuff through that lab. I had always had fish tanks and stuff like that as a kid, but I had never really pursued it seriously um, until I realized that it could be something um, 
you could kind of turn into a career through learning that at Central Campus. So I was exposed to that in Central Campus, and I really liked it, kind of fell in love with it. Then I went out to Oregon. I got an um, associate's degree in aquarium science at the Oregon Coast Community College, and I've done um, a variety of like internships and volunteer work at other aquariums, too. I briefly did a practicum course at the Oregon Coast Aquarium. I was an intern at the Omaha Zoo's Aquarium. Um, I also briefly worked in uh, a locally owned fish store, and I worked in a uh, large aquaculture facility a little ways north of uh, Ames. So I've sort of been all over the place, but for the past few years, I really have been sort of dialed in on uh, fish and stuff like that. And from a reptile and amphibian standpoint, I've always been interested in them from uh, like a hobbyist side of things. Like I've always kept them as pets and everything. So having the opportunity to work with them professionally here has been really cool. When we talk about corals and um, propagating them, um, what does it take to um, keep a coral and propagate it? So corals, um, they come from very specific environments. They're all from very warm tropical regions of the world, at least the ones we generally keep in captivity. Um, and they... Uh, they have this symbiotic dinoflagellate or algae within their tissue that they use to convert sunlight into energy with. So they're an animal, but they kind of grow like a plant. They need very intense sunlight to grow properly. And so we generally find them uh, kind of around the equator or in, in tropical regions. So propagating them in captivity, we have to mimic those specific conditions they grow in in the wild in captivity. So to propagate them, we need very intense lighting. We need very pristine water and good water quality. We need a lot of water flow because in the ocean there's a lot of currents that swirl around, and the corals actually depend on that water flow for a lot of things like gas exchange and bringing them nutrients and things like that. And um, there's also some other husbandry things too, like as corals grow, they pull certain minerals out of the water to grow their skeletons and things of that nature. So sort of maintaining the water chemistry is probably one of the more important things as well. So tell us why that's important to propagate them in human care. Um, you know, obviously, we probably want to reduce the amount of cor uh, animals that we take from the wild, and we've done that. Basically, all land animals are, are just uh, gotten from zoo environments at, at this point, but that's not necessarily the case with aquariums. So c could you tell us why that's important? Yeah, so that's uh, part of the reason why propagating them in captivity is important. So there is a big sort of home hobby for keeping coral reef aquariums. And so there are people who just want to buy corals to keep in their house. So propagating them in captivity means that less corals are taken out of the wild. And there are some very well-managed sort of aquacultured in the wild corals that are sold into the pet trade. So having them taken out of the wild isn't always necessarily a bad thing, but the more that are grown and raised in captivity, obviously the better off it is. But two, um, propagating, in, in, propagating them in captivity is important because coral reefs as a whole in the wild aren't doing too well right now. As um, you may have seen in recent headlines over the last few years, things like bleaching events going on, um, things like coral diseases that are pretty quickly spreading through big reef tracks around the world, Things of that nature are um, having a pretty negative effect on wild coral populations. So keeping them in captivity 
sort of ensures that, you know, if the worst case scenario happens, let's say all the corals on the Great Barrier Reef die out, at least they aren't, you know, entirely extinct. We have them in captivity and we can grow them. And then if whatever environmental conditions that were causing them to die out in the wild can be fixed, we can then later on transplant them back out into the ocean and sort of help them reestablish their populations there. And I was just at a conference a couple weeks ago, and um, there is a um, blight, as we say, maybe a virus, maybe a bacteria. They don't really know what it is that's going through the Florida reef and uh, basically wiping out 25 of the 45 coral species there. And in five years, it is almost taken. There's just a little bitty part of that reef left and uh, zoos in the United States, zoos and aquariums um, are working to save what is left so that when that uh, blight is gone through um, it it would be safe to to repopulate that reef and so that's one of the great conservation stories that that I heard uh, to try to save something that uh, is happening uh, in a natural area Um, what do corals eat? I mean, you know, you, you say they're animals, but we don't really recognize them as having mouths and eyes and all that. So explain why we can call them animals. So um, corals, they fit all the sort of scientific definitions of what an animal is. So casually in your brain, when you think of an animal, you might think of like a deer, you know, running around outside or a dog or a lion or tiger. But um, plants physio- physiologically are very different from animals, and corals are very physiologically different from plants. So they um, they have stinging tentacles that they use to capture prey. You ask what they eat, they'll use those stinging tentacles to capture things like plankton or some larger corals. can capture some uh, slightly larger things like some smaller fish even. Um, they do, the reason why they seem more like plants to most people is they have that symbiotic sort of algae that lives within their cells. So um, those corals then, uh, that algae photosynthesizes in really bright sunlight, and that algae then makes way more like sugars and nutrients than the algae itself can uh, consume, and it releases some of that into the coral. And then the coral provides that algae. It's um, called, uh, it's actually a type of dinoflagellate called symbiodinium. It provides that symbiodinium a very safe place to grow and live in so they kind of do a mixture of things they will they do need that intense light to grow but at the same time they have those stinging tentacles around uh their um, colonies are made up of much smaller individuals called polyps which are all genetically identical to one another and each one of those polyps has a little ring of tentacles around a central mouth so when you look at a big branching piece of a coral, it might look more like a tree or something from a distance. But if you get up real close, um, sometimes with the microscope, sometimes you can just see it with your naked eye. Uh, you'll see these each individual little polyps, and all of those polyps growing together form the bigger coral that we see. And yeah, those polyps do have stinging tentacles, kind of similar to an anemone or a jellyfish, and they will um, catch a variety of different foods floating through the water column that are brought to them with the currents. That's really interesting. Uh, the 
corals colors um, is there anything that you can tell us that explains why they're so rich in color yeah so that's actually um part of that symbiotic algae that lives within their tissue um, they will sort of different strains almost will kind of give them different colors different water conditions will actually cause them to be different colors and some corals too develop pigments as a way to um, sort of mitigate any damage they might get from uv radiation from the sun so they are an animal needing sunlight to grow but just like any other animal with cells and DNA and all that, that sunlight and that radiation can cause them some harm. So I think, if I'm remembering correctly, there are some corals that developed specific blue pigments, or maybe they did it in conjunction with the algae, I can't quite remember. But those um, specific blue pigments actually sort of act like a natural sunscreen, and they uh, um, can sort of protect themselves that way. And I think... They actually, and low tide and things like that, if they ever get exposed to air, they'll release a slime on themselves that'll sort of protect themselves too. They've kind of got a variety of things going on. As far as uh, how people can help protect natural corals, what are some things that uh, people can do, some actions they can take that will help protect uh, natural corals? So there's kind of a, like a big variety of different things that we can do that can help corals in the wild, as well as just the ocean's health in general. So um, making sure that if you eat seafood, that it's responsibly caught, that big portions of the environment weren't damaged with, you know, trawl nets and things like that, that uh, damage the environment to catch those fish. Making sure that, you know, you're not eating some really important keystone species or something that helps keep the coral reefs healthy. Um, there are also things too, you know, a lot of times in the discussion about plastic pollution, we'll see things like, you know, whales with a stomach full of plastic bags and all that. But too, that those plastics, you know, I went on, um, a field studies trip in my central campus class years ago when I was in high school. And when we all went snorkeling, there was a plastic bag wrapped around this big sea fan, which are close relatives of corals. So, you know, Reducing single-use plastics also helps as well. And then anything you can do to sort of reduce um, uh, products that have to be made in conjunction with fossil fuels, all of that, that, uh, that CO2 that gets released into the environment, the ocean sort of acts like a CO2 sink. So if um, there's a whole bunch of it released into the air, a lot of it will be naturally bound into the oceans. But CO2, when mixed with water, makes carbonic acid. And kind of like how I mentioned earlier that corals need pretty specific water chemistry and quality to thrive. Obviously, a lot of um, new acids being added into the ocean wouldn't be very good for their health either. So anything you can do to sort of um, reduce your personal carbon footprint, it doesn't have to be drastic. You know, you don't have to completely stop driving to work every day, but... Anything small you can do, like buy something locally maybe that hasn't been shipped 3,000 miles, um, all, all those sorts of things can help coral reefs in the wild and the oceans as a whole. When you're out maybe snorkeling or scuba diving to see corals, are there some extra precautions that people can take to uh, help them out? Yeah, so there's actually um, a list of recommended sunscreens that you can put on in really heavily... Uh, swam in like really popular beaches or areas where it's really popular to go diving or snorkeling a lot of um, the standard sunscreens can actually cause uh, fish and corals to get sick so there are some i don't remember 
uh, brands or anything off the top of my head, but um, some quick research to figure out what brands are more ocean safe can uh, directly benefit corals in the short term too. If you go out to you know snorkel or dive or anything like that, and as well, um, I think the saying is uh, leave nothing but footprints, take nothing but pictures. Obviously, you're not really going to be leaving footprints when you go diving in the ocean, but you know, I think I saw a kind of viral post a few weeks ago of people who carve their names into corals. And, you know, it's not like carving your name into a tree, which isn't good either, but it's not like carving your name into a tree or a rock or something. You know, these are living things with a very thin layer of tissue on the outside. So physically touching them and abrading them and things of that nature can, if it's a coral that's already on the brink or already fighting off a pathogen or in an iffy spot in the ocean, something like that, like that direct harmful human interaction can sort of tilt the scales against them. So you want to make sure you sort of keep hands off, you know, observations are fine. You want to make sure, you know, you're not leaving any chemicals, you're not, there's no trash or anything around. All that kind of stuff can really help them as well. As far as some of the other animals that uh, you have gotten to uh, take care of here at the zoo, and, and I talked to you beforehand and you said you're not really taking care of the the frogs right now but let's talk let's turn to amphibians because there's another species here at blank park zoo that is uh highly endangered and that's the panamanium golden frog i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the golden frog and its status in natural areas and uh where you can see them here at the zoo so um as for the status of the panamanian golden frog i believe they are functionally extinct in the wild i don't think any individuals have been seen in the wild for a number of years they are originally from sort of mountainous regions of Panama, slightly cooler areas of the tropical rainforest there. And yeah, unfortunately, there are um, none left in the wild. So it's really important. A lot of, uh, especially AZA accredited zoos and aquariums, have small populations of them that they're trying to breed. We do have currently four male Panamanian golden frogs on display here. And we recently got approved by the SSP to get some genetically valuable individuals to um, pursue some breeding programs. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so uh, with those guys, yeah, I don't uh, usually take care of them directly, but um, with them, they like it a little bit cooler in the wild. They live sort of in association with these sort of mountain streams, so kind of like the corals in the ocean that like really pristine water, these guys are getting streams directly fed by rainfall, so they like really good water quality too. They like to climb around. They'll go up and sleep kind of in leaves at night. They're, uh, they're a pretty interesting species to care for, and I think that it's really cool that we have an opportunity to potentially help breed more of them. And then in the future, when sort of a genetic roadmap is more um, established, potentially releasing individuals back into the wild in environments that we know they can survive well in, I think that'll be really exciting as a goal, you know, for in the future. Yeah, Describe the the Panamanian golden frog. I mean, when you think frog, you think green, but you know, as Kermit said, it, it isn't easy being green. So, describe what does the Panamanian golden frog look like? So, uh, kind of like what their name describes them as, they are sort of a bright yellowish golden color, and they do have um, some individuals at least have some black uh, markings, not quite like stripes, but more like blotches. So some they can be arranged from uh, sort of a solid gold sort of frog all the way to, you know, really heavily 
black and yellow. And yeah, they're um, they're pretty calm. They're not usually too jumpy. Um, they like to get up on kind of a high point and look out over their territory and call. They'll throat they'll inflate their throat sack and uh, emit sort of a low sort of croaking noise to attract mates or scare off other competitive frogs. So um, that's sort of a little brief description of what they're like. And we also have. Uh, dart frogs, right? Poison dart frogs? Yes, we do. We have um, both yellow and green poison dart frogs. And these the are quite a bit... These are colorful as well, but they're quite a bit smaller than the, the, the Panamanian golden frog, right? Yeah, they are. So the Panamanian golden frogs are actually more of a, like a toad type, so they're a little bit larger. And uh, the poison dart frogs, yeah, they're a lot smaller, a lot more rambunctious, a lot more active. If you come and see them, they'll be jumping around a whole lot more. And if I remember right... The the dart frogs that we have here at Blank Park Zoo, they when they're in the care of humans, they don't eat the type of uh, insects that are needed to make them poisonous, so they're actually not poisonous, correct? Yeah, so in the wild, they eat a variety of different insects that have all types of different toxins in them. I'm no insect expert, so I couldn't tell you what type of chemicals they are specifically, but they'll eat those insects and then sort of sequester those toxins in a really concentrated form in their skin. So you can imagine, you know, a frog eating a thousand little tiny toxic bugs in a day can pretty quickly put that toxin in their skin and become something you wouldn't want to touch. Here in captivity, we feed them really small crickets. They're called pinhead crickets, and we feed them uh, fruit flies. So after eating those guys, being bred in captivity, first of all, and then eating those sort of self-farmed bugs, they uh, they don't have any trace of toxin left in their skin. It would actually, if you were to hold one in your bare hand, the uh, your skin and the oils and stuff in your skin would do more harm to them than they would to you. So they are very much kind of like our fish. They're hands-off unless we absolutely need to get in there to do something with them. Um, as far as some of the other fish you take care of, uh, why don't you pick out your favorite fish? Tell us about uh, that fish and uh, maybe their conservation status. Oh, man. Um, I don't know. I feel like my favorite fish almost changes on a weekly basis. Uh, I guess right now we have a pair of Hawaiian dragon eels that we had donated last year. Uh, they're probably my favorite. They're... Um, I don't believe they're threatened or anything like that out in the ocean, but uh, they are very cool. They're really fun to feed. As soon as it's feeding time, they'll come up and sort of wave their mouths around outside of the water. They're real active. Um, some other fish I really like working with, we've got a, a big uh, Stars and Stripes puffer fish named Puff Daddy, who's about 13 years old. He's really fun to feed. He'll come up to the surface of the water when he's hungry, and he'll actually spit water at us. Um, I really enjoy just feeding my live coral tank because there are some fish in there like clownfish and stuff like that. It seems like everybody comes out to eat, and it's that's pretty exciting too. And then uh, I do have a sweet spot too for the freshwater stingrays we have in our Amazon exhibit. So I guess personal favorite right now would be those dragon eels, but that'll probably change by next week. I'll fall in love with something else pretty soon. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that we have rays but you have to look at the bottom of the tank, and they're hanging out down there at the bottom of the tank. And once you see them, then, then they're unmistakable. you got to see them every time you come here. Yeah, uh, that Amazon exhibit, if you get right up nice and close and look down at the bottom, we've got four of them hanging out down there right now. So, yeah, they are pretty cool. Yeah, I always think, uh, wow, they're, you know, they're sort of flat and they have that mouth, and 
And you see the bottom of them, and you see that mouth. It looks like they're smiling at you. Yeah, it's really funny. At feeding time, we have a big, long PVC pole that we put food into to deliver food to them down on the bottom. Even though we feed them on the bottom, they'll get pretty excited, and sometimes they'll swim up the window and, you know, flap sort of their wings, and, you know, they'll try to bite on the glass a little bit. So, yeah, it's real funny to see them get sort of rambunctious at feeding time. We'll have to come and videotape uh, you feeding them sometime. I think it would be a great little YouTube video, and we'll... Try to get that sometime. Anytime. Yeah. Um, some of the tanks you actually have to dive in here at Blank Park Zoo. Tell us about that process and and uh, what goes on with that. So, yeah, um, I personally haven't dove in any of the tanks yet, um, but my supervisor does. Basically, these tanks, uh, they are just so large that there's no little algae pad or pole that we could effectively use for some of these farther corners of the tanks. And, like, the bigger... Uh, the artificial reef tank with the uh, fake coral inserts, sometimes algae and things will grow on those. So, yeah, we will have to sort of suit up with a wetsuit, uh, get out the air compressor so that you you know can breathe underwater and sort of get down there. I would say an average of once or twice a month to sort of clean everything off and make it look sort of shiny and new again. And uh, also, sometimes when we go down, uh, uh, food will get brought down too. So, you know, you can kind of be down there and hand feed the animals sometimes get a little closer interaction which is pretty cool the circular tank that we have explain that and explain um it's sort of a pacific northwest tank explain some of the life support just to you know so the animals in there how they can survive so um the pacific northwest is a pretty cold region so the water currents from there come down from alaska so you can imagine water in Alaska would be pretty cool. As it goes down the West Coast and in the Pacific Northwest specifically, it's pretty cool. It remains probably around 50 degrees year-round. It doesn't, outside of tide pool environments, you know, that bake in the sun occasionally, the water temperature there stays pretty much between 50, 55 degrees. So um, all the aquariums that you'll ever see, we try to mimic the natural conditions those animals live in to the best of our ability. So we have to have a big chiller on that system. It's a big sort of refrigeration unit that keeps that water down right about 55, 56 year-round. Uh, otherwise, you know, they'd all pretty much cook in there if we kept them at like the 80 degrees that the other tanks are at. And um, that's probably the most important piece of filtration on there. We've got some pleated filters and things like that to pull some larger particulates out of the water. And uh, in the future, we're probably going to be getting something like a UV sterilizer, which uses uh, UV light concentrated in a small area to kill things like nuisance algae and stuff like that that will grow on the glass. And uh, hopefully we'll be upgrading to have a protein skimmer on there too, which will sort of mimic um, the natural sea foam that you might see when you go to a beach. It'll sort of foam out a lot of you know bad organics and things like that out of the water. And, and for... Those of us that don't know how to translate the science speak, the protein skimmer takes the poop out of the water, right? Is yeah, that, pretty much. It turns yeah, it into foam much. and bubbles it out pretty yeah. much, yeah. Makes the water a lot cleaner. And, and one of the things that I think is so exciting about your job is that when you think of uh, science class or, or you hear a lot about STEM, I mean, these are skills that you've learned in high school in a science class, how to test the water to make sure... It's appropriate for the fish. Talk about that, and, and then we'll have to close off today. So, yeah, um, starting out here locally at Central Campus, uh, it's a really a very solid introduction to some of these things. And uh, 
a lot of students nowadays, they're actually able to um, get into things in a lot more detail, too. So, you know, we had an introduction to there's various types of filtration for aquariums, there's water quality testing, there's plumbing, there's building, there's lighting, there's, you know, just general fish biology, what fish can be housed with one another, you know, what it takes to breed fish, fish nutrition, keeping everything clean, you know, monitoring disease. All that here locally at the Central Campus High School is stuff that they get into, um, and it's a really good introduction, especially for kids who want to do this kind of thing going into the future. It's a really awesome introduction to all of those concepts that then you, they use in a job, like working here at the Blank Park Zoo with the fish. It's all really good introduction to those concepts that get used on a day-to-day -day basis in the professional field. That sounds great. And, and a half hour again has flown by, so we're going to have to... Call it good for today's show. And if you want to learn more about Blank Park Zoo, head on over to our website, blankparkzoo.com. And if you're ever at the zoo and you see, you know, an aquarist uh, taking care of the tanks, say, say hi to him or her. And uh, uh, I'm sure they would love to tell you more about the fish at Blank Park Zoo. Yeah, feel free to ask questions. And we'll see you next time on Saving Animals with Blank Park Zoo.